Welcome to the Just Largely Show on Innovation and Leadership. I'm excited on this episode to have Claire Tonkins. Claire, uh, thanks for doing this and tell us about your exciting company. Thanks, Jess. It's great to be here. So yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Future Family. So January is a big month for a lot of things, including New Year's resolutions, gym membership, and fertility. Uh, what we see in January is just so many women and couples getting excited to go with fertility procedures. And at Future Family, we are a fintech, and we help so many uh, patients across the country move forward with fertility treatment by offering these very, very flexible, affordable monthly plans and built-in digital support and coaching. That's great. So um, can we start by giving people a sense of your scale, like how much you've raised, valuations, number of customers, anything like that for people to give a sense of, of how much you guys have, have grown? Yeah, there's a few milestones that we are kind of proud to share. So we're now helping thousands of patients nationwide. In 2022, we became the largest platform for financing procedures for fertility in the U.S. Um, so we were very excited about that. There have been some longstanding solutions, and we just feel like we can really provide the patient experience that's hard to find anywhere else. And as a former IVF patient, I have three IVF kiddos. I really find that it's the cost and complexity of the journey that often trips up so many potential patients. Um, and so we're very much in the business, as we say, of helping everyone on their path to parenthood. That's exciting. Um, I was reading some of the headlines about, about some, some big fundraising accomplishments as well in the last years. Yeah, we were very excited to complete a Series B round of capital in 2022, uh, bringing on a new partner, Munich Reventures, uh, as our lead investor, and then joined by uh, several other great investors, including uh, Tri Ventures on the healthcare side. And of course, just expanding our board. So we have a really great balanced board with Osh and Munich Reventures and Lauren, A Crew Capital, and then Omri Dahan, who helped build Marketa and exited a couple of years ago, and then Levi King at NAV. So it has been a good year for fundraising. And also, I would say on the debt side, we have some great debt partners, and we currently work with a fund in New York uh, on a $100 million warehouse to help finance more patients. Yeah. So, um, and, and correct me on these numbers. Had you raised $9 million before and then twenty five on the on the Series B? Is that, or am I getting that That's wrong? That's right. That's right. We had raised a $9 million A1 round of capital and the $25 million Series B. And depending on how the markets go, we may raise some more capital in the near future. <laughs> um, and, and is it public what you guys, what that B valuation was when you were raising? What that um, was against? Yes. We, I think we're one of the few companies out there that might not be overvalued where we're still just sub 100 million. Yeah. Um, so when you think about that kind of, you know, $100 million valuation, $100 billion debt warehouse to be able to do this, um, can you explain to people um, who, who don't have a sense? You know, like I have a close family member who unfortunately had major struggles for years and years. And um, and uh, then with the procedures, uh, got twins and and now another one as well. And uh, a lot of a lot of happiness in our family. But, you know, that stress and that finance is a lot. Can you talk about just this model of both the support groups and the the financing of things that maybe health insurance isn't normally going to cover? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
I think one of the things that differentiates future family is that we really have both components on platform. As someone who's been through this, I can tell you it's incredibly expensive. And especially if you're going through more than one round. And as you said, it's stressful. I often tell our team that we deal with the two most stressful things on the planet, finances and fertility. And so at Future Family, you get a financial specialist and counselor who's going to help you figure out the best financial plan. And I would say that for all of us, for most of us, it's probably the right plan to take out a really simple monthly plan. So you can do IVF today for starting at something like $350, $400 a month on a 60-month or five-year plan that you can prepay at any time. And so instead of having this shock, $20,000, $25,000, you have an easy, stress-free way to pay for fertility. Once you're done talking to the financial specialist, you're going to meet one of our registered nurses who's a fertility coach. All of our nurses have thousands of hours of clinical experience, have helped patients get pregnant and have successful family starts. And they're all there to deal with the myriad questions that each one of us has. How to order my medications? Am I doing the injections correctly? What to do at 10 p.m. at night? Whether or not to be concerned if I have some light spotting and how to talk to my partner about how I'm really feeling. So the nurses are a critical layer of support and they're available like on demand, texting, video, phone. So I think what differentiates it is like, we thought about the experience from the perspective of a patient. What would we want to have if we were going to start our family this way? And obviously, it's not just starting your family. It's also preserving your fertility, maybe going through egg freezing, lots of different journeys. Yeah. Um, so when you, think about, um, when you think about startups in general, um, had, well, let's start a little bit. Uh, we talked a little bit about your school and then what you did. And then when you decided this is what you were going to do. Yeah, I would say I made this logical career decision to go from financing solar asset into fertility. Uh, so it was a bit of a turn and, and change of direction. But of course, I got into this space having gone through a personal journey. And I do think I got some great advice along the way. It was like, if you're going to build a company, you're going to be doing this for a long time and you better really fucking care about what the, what the problem is you're solving. And so having gone through fertility, I was really passionate about this. I felt I had had that experience of not knowing if I could be successful, if I could start my family and what to do. And so even in the hard times, I feel like that's my touchstone. I want to help other people go through that. Um, and so that, that was really what led to the founding of Future Family. And before that, I had been in the fintech space, consumer finance, but on the solar side, also passionate about ESG and environmental sustainability. And I had come to the Bay Area for grad school. So before coming here, I didn't really know what a startup or an entrepreneur was, but I moved here for Stanford and, of course, quickly got to understand the ecosystem and sort of discovered about myself that I think in my DNA, I very much was an entrepreneur. Uh, and, and what degree did you do at Stanford? I was a master's and PhD in management, science, and engineering, which okay. now people ask me, 
should I do a PhD? What's your advice? It's a hard one because I jokingly say that years of education is inversely correlated with financial success. <laughs> Actually, I do want to talk about that. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to take some classes at Stanford and I loved it and it was, it was great. Um, but I am interested of like having really gone through it and, and not just gone through it, but I mean, a company that's closing at a hundred million dollar valuation, do you know what I mean? Like that's, that puts you in a rare percentage of entrepreneurs compared to what you studied. Um, what, how have you found it different than you anticipated when like the buck stops with you? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of things, right? I have reflected on this, like that level of study and going through a master's and then a PhD. I mean, probably one of the biggest things is actually, I think if people had connected the dots, they would have said like, oh, this is someone who perseveres and does not give up. Like I'm chronically incapable of giving up on something. And so I actually found doing a PhD incredibly hard um, just from my background coming into the program. And yet I was like, absolutely not going to quit. <laughs> um, so there's that component. The other piece I will say is like, I think the thing I enjoy most about my job right now, in addition to working with my pretty amazing team, is the ability to think about and imagine and build new financial products. And so that is actually something that I think I developed some of the early ideas and even some of the confidence and then certainly some of the you know, rigorous thinking at graduate school. Um, and so, yes, I don't think I'm doing the level of financial modeling I was in my PhD. A lot of those skills have given me the building blocks, if you will, to think about how to build new financial products. Yeah. Um, I'm interested. When you think about building a kind of business that gets into the tens of millions, um, how do you think about product market fit? People define it so differently. What is it to you? Yeah, so it's there's a certain repeatability that is really important where you'll get to a stage in your company that you'll be able to project if you put in this amount of money and you do these things, you're going to have this outcome. And I think that's really what a lot of investors um, and certainly entrepreneurs think about in terms of moving from the early phase to the growth phase. How much confidence do you have that these inputs equal those outputs? Like I say, in the early days, right, it's a, a very squiggly line between those two things. It's sort of, okay, you know, I'm going to invest this money and I'm trying to get this outcome and that might not work. So then I might invest in this other area to try and get that outcome. So you're testing, almost like hypothesis testing, to get to that answer. By the time you get to growth, you kind of want to know this in here, this out there. A great example within our business would be if we add a new clinic to our platform as a partner, we expect that they'll send us a certain number of patient referrals. And we expect that we'll convert a certain number of those and those will become paying customers. So it starts to become a bit more like a machine okay, we're going to add a new clinic partner. We're going to help this many patients go forward and we're going to get this much revenue. And then we can say to a partner, an investor, uh, an executive on the team, go and get 30 more clinics. Go get 50 more clinics. 
and you you have this sense of how the business is going to scale. Um, and so I think that's really product market fit is like, you know, who's using your product and how in an almost predictable way. Yeah. Um, I'm interested when you think about staffing, um, especially like when you're maybe still in a little bit of the scavenger hunt, uh, figuring that out. And there's the people you want, people you can afford, the kind of people who can deal with the kind of uncertainty you need. As you think about both who to select and how to get them to choose you, what, what are some of your theories and philosophies there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've evolved my philosophy quite a bit over the last several years. So first, I think kind of like the founder themselves, he's like, if you're going to work at a startup, it's ideal if you care about the problem they're solving. So I think that's right. Um, I also think when you think about the earliest people of the team, you really do need people on your team who don't need a lot of supervision. It's just not realistic that you're going to be providing a lot of supervision. So frankly, that actually means a little bit more experienced, a little bit more like we call it, do you know what good is? Because when you're early in your career, you don't necessarily know what good is. What's a good slide presentation? What's a good marketing plan? What's a rigorous um, growth test? But hopefully as you get down the path, you do know what good is. So like, do you know what good is? I think a little bit of experience is really great. And then certainly this ability to self-direct and operate without a lot of boundaries. And you can usually have candid conversations with people about how much structure they want, how much structure they're expecting, how much they've had in the past um, to understand if it's a good fit. It's definitely a mistake to think that everybody's a great fit for a startup. Maybe a very late stage company, hundreds, if not thousands of employees, but wanting to do the early stage with, you know, it may or may not be working, change direction a lot, limited structure. It's certainly not what everybody enjoys. So I think really teasing that out in the interview process and, and looking for that and looking for examples. Where have you done things in an unstructured environment? Um, show that you would like this type of um, experience. It's really important. And then the other thing is, I would say, is just like, you know, always go for the outsized talent. Um, I, I think for early stage founders, I would say, if you can do it, um, recruit top talent from the beginning. It'll make you better and it will um, it'll allow you ultimately to go faster. Um, and really, frankly, one of the places that founders skimp, myself included in the early days, is on doing things like paying recruiter fees. It's like, oh, it's expensive. Maybe I'll try and use my own network. I think it's very hard to run a comprehensive search with your own network. Like, know what you're good at. You're the visionary or you're the product leader, or you're the founder, or you're the engineer, um, but you're probably not a world-class recruiter. So hire that function, um, even from the early days, even for your early team. So, Interesting. Um, you know, I'm fascinated with what you talk about of like, can you turn this almost into uh, like a machine is what you called it. Um, you know, a couple of the, a couple of the bigger guests we've had on in the last couple of months, we had a couple of weeks ago, we had a few weeks ago, we had Fred Vicola who grew Kaysera to, mm. I think he took over and they're like 120 million. Now they're 20 billion. Right. Yeah. Cool. And I was asking him 
you know, what's the big change from 100 or 200 million over the billion mark? And he says that um, what he feels like is they need more of a factory for acquiring revenue, he calls it revenue acquisition factory, right? Of like where their sales system is like that product market that you talked about. Or like we had, um, yeah. uh, we had Chip Wilson on the show and he was talking about, because um, he, he'd had a really successful snowboard brand before he started Lululemon and a snowboard clothing called West Beach. And mm. I said, okay, what's the difference between, so the day we had him on the show, Lululemon's worth like 47 billion or something. And I was like, what's the difference between billion and multi-billion? And he said, oh, Jess, I read this book called The E-Myth, The Entrepreneurial Myth. <laughs> Have you heard of it? I was like, yeah, of course. And uh, he's like, I just decided that's what our stores were going to be like. You know, it was, we were going to have this super complex organization. They were going to be like self-contained units with, what, with really strong leadership at that level. And then I could just do that unit over and over and over. And um, with a high, like you said, high degree of reliability that we were going to get the same result when we did the same process. Um, so, you know, in a, in a retail store like a Lululemon, th that computes really easy in my mind. Um, you know, for Fred, where like their version of, hey, here's how the marketing, you know, marketing works with lead gen, works with the sale team. We do these activities. We get this many more small businesses that use RIT. But what, is, what does the machine look like in the uh, fertility, fertility financing world? Well, the good news is the more successful we are, the more babies we have. So it's a, <laughs> it's a really great machine. It is, um, it is. But yeah, I, I'd say it, more in the fintech side and, and on fertility. Look, I think in this early years, there's so much market opportunity that as soon as you find something that's kind of repeatable, like a product a consumer wants and hopefully a way to distribute it affordably, like whether it's digital or channel, then you're just trying to repeat that. And I think that's kind of the phase that we're in. But I think when you think about like this machine, as you asked, and this ties a little bit into TAM, the famous TAM world, is it's about the, the innovation, what comes next. So you're going to build a really good machine, but exactly to the point about this factory for revenue, it's what you start with is not going to be enough. What gets you to 100 million of revenue run rate doesn't get you to a billion of revenue run rate. So even today, believe it or not, inside the company, we're working on the roadmap of new channels and actually new products that we believe become a, a massive part of our revenue stack. But in the next three to five years, because we know that we have to keep adding more essentially product and distribution onto the core technology platform um, now some of the new stuff doesn't have the product market fit yet. So that's why I say three to five years because we kind of know how it goes and we've got customers and we've got a brand. So it's much easier, but we still have to get the product market fit for the new products or the new innovation. And, and so it goes. Yeah. So when you think about new customer acquisition <clears throat> now, um, you talked about referrals from a clinic. I mean, are you guys doing D2C like social or what? what how does that work mix look like in your world? Yeah, probably most companies as they grow really have to be omni-channel. Um, the clinic uh, network and our clinic partners are probably our most important. And that's because that's where we can help patients the most easily that they know they want to move forward with treatment. They found a doctor, they probably have a treatment plan. So there's a natural synergy there of like, we alleviate that stress 
and make it much easier to move forward with treatment and work really uh, closely with our clinic partners who provide amazing medical service to these, these patients and these families-to-be. So that's an incredibly important part of our business. And we are, as I mentioned, now the largest. We have 520 clinic partners. We're in every major metro. And wherever you go, hopefully you'll have a chance to use Future Family to help start your family. Um, now, additionally, of course, you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on our website at futurefamily.com with a lot of blog and social content to understand it. And increasingly, we're very lucky, kind of blessed to have reviews from our patients who've used the service. And so they're referring friends and family members. And that's how a lot of fertility works, like find a doctor. Or where do you go? It's through your friends and family. So that's also been happening for us. And I think that's a testament to the service that the team really provides at Future Family. Everyone's really passionate about this and really celebrates every success story, every baby. Yeah. So my guess is that a lot of your competitors would would claim similar things about caring for the customer and, and these kind of things. And yet you're the biggest and they aren't. What do you think that you've done differently? Yeah. Well, so I think this is an area that's just like ripe for innovation. Being a patient, I kind of saw that firsthand. And I think part of it is the the ease, simplicity, and integrated solution. So consumers have a very high bar today. Right? We've become very accustomed to our Instacart one-click and our Amazon Prime and Alexa, you name it, right? We've become very close. So I think that we've brought in that experience to fertility. We're sort of saying like, you're going to go on a complex medical journey, but using Future Family and the Future Family app, you can easily pay for a procedure, have the payments managed for you, automated, and still get the coaching support that, again, consumers have come to expect. So they can, at a touch of a button, talk to a nurse, get their answers question, get the support they need. So I think really that ease and that simplification, you could always go to your bank and try and get a loan to start your family. But this is an integrated experience that begins in the doctor's office. And then goes throughout your treatment and procedure and maybe even your second child. <laughs> yeah. Um, and where you feel like other people just haven't, haven't held that same, themselves to that same standard of, you know, look at how easy Apple is to use. Look at how easy Amazon is to use. And they haven't created a seamless uh, of, of a high level oh, experience. Oh, for sure. It, I kind of call it like <laughs> what existed and all of financial services are being unbundled and reimagined, right? But what kind of existed before... Is like, we, I called it a brown paper bag of money. If you find a brown paper bag of money, it still helps you because it is money. But that's all it is. And I think at Future Family, we imagined something different. We said, all right, what would it be like to go through this experience where your first question actually might be, how much is it going to cost? Well, the brown paper bag doesn't tell you. You don't know if the brown paper bag is enough, too little, and then you still have to distribute the brown paper bag of money to the clinic, to the pharmacy, to the surgical, to the anesthesia, to the pharmacist. So we took all of that apart. We said, we'll use data to tell you what your estimated cost of treatment with very high accuracy. Then we'll also allow you to compute what, how much overage you would need. So every consumer gets a plan that's like fully covering their treatment costs. Clinics and pharmacies are getting paid automatically, and you see on the app, oh, this has been paid, this has been paid, this has been paid. And then when you have questions, 
again, the brown paper bag with money doesn't have a lot to say to you. But our platform has registered professional nurses who will answer those questions. So we were like, we want to be a modern financial partner to you. We don't want to be a brown paper bag of money. Yeah. Um, I'm interested, you know, there's in the world of startups, there's obviously a, a much, much larger percentage that have a company that's worth a million or five million or or maybe a little more than that. Um, and there's there's far, far fewer whose company is worth the tens and tens of millions. Um, when you think about just some of the most important principles that maybe you don't see everywhere, or just when you think about that difference of a small company versus what's becoming a, a much larger company, what do you think are the, the lessons you would tell CEO founders today? Yeah, there's a few few things for sure. Um, so especially in light of like the most recent market correction, which depending on who you talk to is sort of, you know, obviously coming for a while. <clears throat> there is a, a pretty time-honored tradition of in the early days, valuations move around and actually have gone up a lot for seed, um, which shows that people are very bullish on technology and the ability to build a bigger company. That the seed valuations are how bullish people are on the technology sector at particular verticals. But obviously the later valuations, you inescapably are going to run into revenue, right? There's this very funny episode of Silicon Valley, the TV show, where famously Richard is about to like get his revenue model going and his advisor is like, revenue? Revenue? No revenue. As soon as you have revenue, it's never enough. The idea is like, you are going to run into that. So I think you just have to have very reasonable expectation about how valuations and revenue tie together. And then very focused on building something that actually drives sustainable revenue, right? Because the difference between that seed stage valuation is like a great idea in a vertical that can really scale versus a company that is able to produce revenue. And then the next level of valuation will be a company that can produce revenue at high margin. Um, and, and, and you go through these bubbles and then people get very far away from these metrics of revenue growth and margin. And then the bubble bursts and then you get very close to these metrics of revenue and margin. So. Yeah. Um, uh, what would be it? I mean, that's great. There's obviously a, there's a lot of pain going around for people who forgot that businesses need to have a margin at some point, right? When it was, when it was all going to be off of future hopes and dreams, there's, there's some people having some struggles right now, right? That's certainly true. Um, and I think that correction is going to last for a while. And the good news is some creativity will come out of it. Like the conversations even we have internally are much more sensitive to good questions of margin. We're making slightly different decisions and trade-offs than we would have even 12 months ago. And it's good. It's actually good for the business. So it's just forcing a little more discipline, a little bit of a different lens. Um, there's a little less pressure on the growth side and a little more pressure on the margin side. That said, I really don't believe in totally taking the foot off the gas. That I just think in these environments, you have to, in some sense, work a little harder to do both. You, you have to grow. And you have to have as good a margin as possible and ideally 
a gross margin that's going to expand um, as you scale. Yeah. How do you think about unit economics and profitable growth? Um, yeah. So I think the you know, it's it's all about finding partnership with the right investors around the table. So if you don't yourself believe that you have a pathway to really good economics and margin, that's going to be a problem. But I obviously think it takes time to get there. So there's trade-offs you may make earlier in a business later. I'll give you a great example. We're a financing company. Uh, so in the early days, we've been using a warehouse facility to finance our loans. We're not going to do that forever. That's, but there's a way to scale. And so in doing that, we ha had a higher cost of money and it's, and it's hurt our margin overall. But the right investor and partner for a future family knows that that's not the forever game. Like if you really believe that we're talking on this podcast in three to four years and we're still doing that, well, something probably went wrong. So I think a lot about it is like, what are the levers? to pull for better unit economics? When do you pull them? And is there believability around it? Um, if you're sort of saying, well, our CAC is super high and in two years it's going to drop by 90%. Uh, okay, but how? Like that's a little bit magical thinking. If you're saying, hey, I have a high cost of capital, but I have three partners that want to do a deal at a much lower cost of capital, believability. So I think it's a lot around those core businesses. I will say that to fuel hyper growth, you often get into a very high CAC world. And that's probably where there's the most pain is when you're fueling hyper growth through very high CAC and you don't have a solution for that. And that's what I see the most in models that have difficulty and even companies I've been involved in the past. You know, that the cost of acquiring a customer is such an interesting space, right? Because for, for really small businesses, they have to have that right off the bat. You know, businesses that, you know, are bootstrapping, right? If you're, if you yeah. need to be profitable month one, right? Mm -hmm. um, I really, I think my favorite thing you said there, though, is this mindset of like having a, I don't, I'm going to put words in your mouth. You correct me if I'm misquoting you here. But I felt like you were saying is like, do you have a realistic path? to better margin. And I think, you know, certainly in a lot of like old industrial businesses, there's, there can be this sense of like, well, over time margins actually go down because we're adding complexity and we're adding layers of management, mm. but we're doing it on so much volume that, that we make more money, so it's worth it. Um, but as you said that, I thought like, I immediately thought of my, our commercial real estate fund, and it's like, our, my management company does not need to linearly scare our, scale up our expenses to handle more investors. So that's a, a very obvious model where that works. But I was thinking about our media company. And like, you know, when, we bring, when some CEO is like, oh, yeah, I want to meet enterprise customers that could spend a million dollars with us. And we're like, oh, we'll put them on a podcast for you in that, that kind of business, right? Mm -hmm. Like I could like, you know, producers, client specialists, graph designers, editors, sometimes multiple editors, Copyright, like, do you mean like there's a full team that's needed for every one of those shows? And I had been, I don't know that I'd really been thinking about pushing myself on, do we have a path to wider margin? Because like we, you need that many, if you're going to do like high quality shows, like you need that many people every time. And so we are kind of constantly hiring as we get new customers. But you just saying that forced me to think like, 
oh yeah, how could I do that? Like, have I kind of just mentally accepted our margins were going to go down? And, and just you like pointing that out, I, I started thinking like, huh, you know what? Maybe what we're going to have to do is push ourselves harder to grow even further up the food chain media quality wise. And, you know, I just had the editor of um, Entrepreneur Magazine on the show, right? Fantastic. And they make a ton from their advertising margin because of the level of credibility they've got mm -hmm. going out there, you know? And like, I think if I do plan on producing the same product we've always produced, I'm probably not going to be able to charge much bigger margin for it, right? And so like, what add-on services can I, what add-on services can I add that are not linear? You know, can we get people speaking gigs? Can we get people on other people's shows? Can we get people, can we get people in Entrepreneur Magazine or, you know? Yeah, like how do you move the price point up? Or how do you automate more of the production side? Yeah, because something has to give in terms of your cost structure or your your prices. But I kind of like that as like the eternal sport. So like we're going crazy right now with AI, both on the text and the digital side for enhancing. And um, we're not really finding it able to replace, but it is really extending the reach of our team. But it's like, well, that's great. But what are we only going to progress next time somebody comes out with a great product? Like what's our what's our internal standard of like, I got really into like continuous improvement when like tours in Japan for Toyota and mm -hmm. went around yeah. the U.S. to different facilities. And like these people, like they plan on getting better every year for the next 50 years. Like they're not like, oh, we need to get a certain amount better and then we can rest. It's like I, I saw a product at a Toyota supplier that was um, it was 85 percent cheaper than when it had been created like 25 years ago in actual dollars, like let alone inflation, right? Because they continually figured out how can, we, how can we improve this process? How can we shorten the times? How, and it's just like, it's almost like mind-bending numbers of like, how could that really be possible? Well, it's, it's people who think that's the sport they're going to play every day. So anyways, yeah, that, that was your inspiration I mean, for me. If you have a really good CFO, that is definitely their sport of choice. It's like they're looking at all the time at the unit economics of, yeah, how do we expand um, our pricing structure? We talk about that a lot. And then also, you know, continued efficiency improvements that ultimately drive the cost structure. I mean, sometimes you can have step functions. You find something and it's like, this is a step function. This really will do that 30% reduction. And sometimes it's just efficiency improvements that you get, you know, 5% Q over Q for a while um, to come down. but you know, we started this business, we had extremely high CAC. We were doing digital advertising and we had long conversion cycles because it's fertility. And so we were in the thousands, you know, there's a thousand dollar plus of CAC. Today we have tiny CAC and it's just, that was more of a step function. That was more like learning how to drive a referral business versus a digital advertising business. So there's step functions and the proverbial pivot, or there's the continuous improvement on efficiency and better tooling for your team and the ability to increase throughput and more automation self-serve for either enterprise or consumers, right? So all of those things, but you're right. It's uh, saying it's a sport makes it sound more fun or even more sexy. Um, well, actually, can you share with us one of these principles of people who would like to be doing more referrals than, than digital acquisition? 
Oh, well, that's a great question. I mean, a couple of different components there to unpack. So there's kind of organic referral, and that's really the strength of your product. So if you're not getting that on some level, you probably want to be asking, why are we not getting it? Um, Because that's usually the strength of the product, right? Whether it's enterprise, um, you know, CIO talking to CIO or chief customer talking to chief customer. There's some component and there's obviously even a more like viral component within consumers. So I think that's a product component. What do people, you can survey, what do people love about it? What do they not love about it? How likely are they to recommend it as the NPS? Um, so there's that component. And then the other piece would just be um, wh- where do you have potentially channel opportunities um, that are other than just digital advertising. Um, maybe you're trying to sell um, b- baby food and already someone has a great channel for diapers. So you're going to do a partnership deal with them and they'll sell your baby food to their diaper customers. And obviously you have to pay them a spit. So, you know, I think getting very creative about channels, um, particularly synergies, is obviously a big piece of how to how to grow outside of just the digital advertising land. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, I know we're kind of winding down for time here. Why don't you uh, can give everybody the company website again? Yeah, thanks, Jess. So if you want to visit us, come to futurefamily.com. You can um, easily get started and you'll get routed to a financial specialist and a fertility coach. And we'd love to help as many of you as possible on your fertility journey in 2023. I love it. Uh, maybe to end with, you can tell us one of your favorite business books or recommendations. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to use this to give a big plug to my very favorite book of 2022, which was a book by Carol Robin and David Bradford. And so as opposed to telling you how to decrease your CAC, improve your margin, grow fast, uh, become a billion dollar company, et cetera. This is a book that called Connect. It's a very simple title. And it's really all about how to build relationships. And that's within your team, um, even within your personal life. And the reason I think it's important is because I always say to my team, like the most important thing for us to go farther and faster is for us to trust each other and like each other and want everyone on the team to succeed. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for making time for this. Yeah, thanks for hosting me, Jess. It's great to be here.